Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Maddie Fennell, Executive Director of the Nebraska State Education Association. Maddie Fennell is the executive director of the 28,000-member Nebraska State Education Association. She is a national board-certified teacher, the 2007 Nebraska Teacher of the Year, and a 27-year educator. Maddie spent three years on special assignment to the U.S. Department of Education as a teacher leader in residence in the Office of the Secretary and as a teaching ambassador fellow. She is currently the board chairperson of the National Network of State Teachers of the Year as a teacher representative on the Education Reimagined Project and on the board of the Jefferson Education Exchange. Maddie earned her undergraduate degree from Creighton University, a Master of Science in Elementary Education, and a Certificate in Urban Education from the University of Nebraska at Omaha, and an endorsement in assessment from the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. Maddie is a lifelong advocate for children and public education. Maddie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Why did you become a teacher? Oh, it's the simplest and sometimes the most trite answer, but I just love kids. I love being around kids. I love watching them learn. They make me laugh. I just, if I don't get a kid fix every couple days, I'm not happy. And I still, I haven't, I've been out of the classroom now for a couple of years. I still have school dreams. Just love it. You know, it's interesting that you say that because one of the images that comes to my mind, uh, unfortunately, is the increasingly common image of law enforcement being used within schools. Mm -hmm. And the idea of kids laughing and bringing joy and smiles to their teachers' faces seems to be, to some degree, not the media or public impression that's being delivered now. Rather, it's of hardening schools and also hardening children. Yeah, it's really sad. I I recently heard from a friend of mine who said that they'd done a lockdown drill at school within the last few weeks after the last shooting. And she was with some really young primary students. And um, she said they just were crying. There was kids just crying. It was, and, and a parent told her later that the child woke up in the middle of the night having nightmares. You know, it's really sad what our country has come to, that we feel that it's better to harden our schools than to you know, take the guns out of the hands of people who should not have them. It's a scary place to be. You know, I, I, again, read something else on Facebook from someone who said, was talking about, um, you know, what was the quote? It was something about, I'll stand in front of the, you know, I took this job to stand in front of the gun. And I, and I wrote back and I said, no, I didn't. I started 27 years ago and the thought of having to stand in front of a gun to protect my students, I never thought that. I, that, that was not why I went into teaching because I loved kids, not because I thought I needed to protect them. And so it's, it, you know, I think it's one of the reasons why we're having such a hard time today recruiting people into the profession. The profession's gotten harder and harder. The esteem has gotten lower and lower. And the, in many places, as we can see what's been happening in West Virginia and Oklahoma and now Colorado and Arizona, the economics aren't keeping pace. You know, you're, you've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars, well, tens of thousands for sure, probably four years of college, at least 100000 overall. Um, you've got a big loan debt and you're coming out into a job where you're making, if you're lucky, 30 to 35 in most places. It's not doable. It's not a long-term systemic approach to producing the best education system in the world. So you've mentioned the esteem of teachers and possibly also education itself being reduced and also the factor of difficulty of the work increasing. So let me just ask you a a broad 
question, what are your perspectives and perceptions of the state of education today? Well, I think that we have kids who are coming to school at a higher level of stress than in the past. That stress can be caused by a number of factors. We have a higher number of kids coming in from poverty. And we've often thought of poverty as an urban type of thing, but we also have rural poverty. And one of the things that I was really surprised when I was Nebraska Teacher of the Year, I traveled the state doing a lot of speaking, talking with teachers across the state. And I was really surprised in the differences between rural and urban urban poverty and the similarities. But one of the differences was that kids from an urban area, um, there are some schools where everybody's on free lunch. I mean, I used to have kids when a kid would come in and pay for the lunch, the kids would be like, why are you paying for lunch? What, you know, you don't pay for lunch. I thought that was strange. In rural areas, they have more of a hidden poverty. They don't want people to know their business. They don't want people to know that they need for either, you know, there's a greater sense of pride, but perhaps um, around those things and around caring for your family or whatever. It's just not part of the environment of what they're doing. And so there were a lot of schools that weren't getting the resources that they needed because their families wouldn't let them know the poverty that they were in. And yet the kids were still coming from stressful environments because that's what, it's not that a kid from poverty has less capability. It's that they have more stress in their life. And we know as adults, when we have more stress, it's harder for us to focus. When kids have more stress in their lives, it's also harder for them to focus. And that stress in some cases can be not enough food in the fridge or a parent that you only see for a couple of hours on the weekend because they're working multiple jobs and you're going to daycare from early to late. Um, you know, I, I, I mentioned, you know, food insecurity. I'm currently where my husband and I are um, doing respite care and, and I'm an educational surrogate for a, a young girl who when she spends the night with us, I have to leave food out because she had such food insecurity growing up that she has to be able to wake up in the middle of the night and be able to eat or she gets very anxious because many times in her home she didn't have food. So those are a lot of stressors that those kids bring with them. And then we know that if you're coming from poverty, you have less access to things. You have less access to books. You have less access to great health care. We know kids who've been living, for instance, in North Omaha um, have had... Um, you know, the lead situation, we can see that in other cities too. And Omaha was from the, you know, the um, was it the Asarco plant, I think, and um, the whole paint situation. You know, there's a, there's a lot of different things that impact kids who are coming from those poverty, stressful situations. Doesn't mean they can't get over things, but it needs you, you, you need a greater emphasis on meeting their needs. You know, one interesting fact, a kid coming into schools from poverty comes in with half the words of a child coming in from middle class. Well, that impacts when you go to read something and you're reading about a teacup. And I'd have kids look at me and go, what's a teacup? When I taught first grade, they had no clue what a teacup was. Now, you're English. You have every knowledge of teacups in the world, probably. But they knew a mug. They knew a cup, you know, but they didn't understand that concept. I could, you know, it was always funny when I was back in the early 90s when I was teaching and be in first grade and I'd be doing all this phonetic stuff. And some of the pictures would come up and they'd be like, what is this thing? They didn't even know, that, let alone how to spell the word. They didn't know how to put a word to the picture. And so that's a... That's a dissonance that teachers have to make up and make up pretty quickly. Has it always been the case that schools and or school systems have been shoehorned into being solutions for or resources to resolve other social ills? Yeah, I think so. I think it's just kind of a natural. I mean, kids spend the predominance of their day 
the predominance of their waking hours with their teachers and then, you know, the rest of their lives with their parents. But, you know, between I always told uh, families that it's like a three legged stool. It's it's me. It's your parent. It's the student. And together we make this all work. Um, and so because of that, I think that because we do touch every child um, every day, that there's just a natural um place for teachers to be, for schools to be the ones that make up for the differences. The problem is the differences in what needs to be made up are only growing and growing. The societal ills are only um, getting bigger. You know, it's, it's not just poverty, it's violence in communities. It's parents who can't make a living wage, so they're working more hours and more jobs. Uh, it's a lack of health care. I mean, I'll never forget one young man came into my room one day with um, huge swollen cheek. And I, you know, I'm like, dude, you, that, he, that looks painful. He says, it really hurts. And I called his mom and she said, you know, I can't find a dentist in this neighborhood who will take his Medicaid. And so I called a friend of mine who was a dentist and, you know, took the kid out. This is... I'm going to date myself. This was just as the beginning of cell phones. So I schlepped the kid out to the dentist and he's like, I need the mom's permission. She didn't have a cell phone. I had to schlep all the way back because he was way out in 120th. I was teaching down on the north side. And and um, anyway, finally got the kid's tooth pulled and everything. But the mom didn't have a car. You know, she didn't have transportation there. You know, it's we've and that was back in the 90s. Now we've lowered Medicare and Medicaid um uh, reimbursements for doctors so low, it's getting harder and harder to find people who will take those. And it's doing really negative things to our, our whole, our whole healthcare system. So school, that's why now schools have wraparounds, right? That's why we now do clinics in schools because they can't find other places to get their shots to, you know, check the bed bugs or to, you know, make you know, all those things, you know, the ear infections and the pink eye and all those kinds of things that have to be checked when you, when you're limited on your transportation and your access, that's a real problem. Naughty boys in nasty schools and masters breaking all the rules, having fun and playing pools, smashing up the woodwork tools, all the teachers in the pub, passing and already rough, trying not to when that lunchtime bell will ring again Oh what fun we had But did it really turn out bad All our love at school Was has it been not break the rules Oh what fun we had But at that time it seems so bad Trying different ways To make a difference too The headmasters had enough today All the kids have gone away Gone to fight the next to school Every turn that is the rule Sits alone and bends his cane Same old backsides again All the small ones tell to tales Walking home and squashing It makes me wonder if, in fact, there is the potential to reframe entirely what schools are and to reframe them away from being centers for education, but being places where children are given all of the necessary tools and experiences they need to 
exist in the world until we hand them off to the professional world. Yeah, it's an interesting theory. I mean, there definitely needs to be a place of coordination. And I think in many cases we're lacking that. And schools would seem to be um, kind of a natural place for that to happen. The problem is people get really nervous about, are you stepping on my turf? And if we're going to do that, how's it going to get funded? I mean, we just had a wonderful bill in the legislature, LB998 by Senator Walls, that would have provided a social worker for every educational service unit. Just somebody to help us coordinate this work. I mean, we know we have kids with increasing mental health needs. And that would have been somebody to coordinate. And it wouldn't have cost the state anything because it was going to be paid for by private funding. And just today we found out the governor vetoed it. Why? I mean, I, I don't understand why the state wouldn't want to support something that isn't costing the state a dime, that gives us a chance to start going down this path, learning what would be our best practice. You know, sure, we'd love to have multiple social workers in school districts, especially our larger school districts, but we know right now we can't afford that. But could we have a coordinator to begin helping with some of this stuff? Because our health and human services are completely overwhelmed. Um, and the governor said, no, I don't think that this is right. Didn't offer a better suggestion, but vetoed that bill. And so I, 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 while I agree with you, it sounds like a great idea. It's getting everybody on board to do it. We've got another senator out of North Platte, Senator Groney, who says the kids don't have mental health problems. They just, are, they just aren't behaving well, right? They just need some good old-fashioned discipline, and that'll do it. Well, no, it won't, because there are kids with significant mental health issues. Uh, for a variety of reasons. And we have to deal with those. We have to deal with the etymology of that. That's one of the things I'm very proud of at the NSEA. We've started a new 501c3 called LEARN, um, Leading Excellence and Robust Networks. I always have to think of the acronym. And we're going to be offering professional development for teachers across the state. And we don't care if you're a public school teacher, if you're a member or non-member, if you're a private school, Catholic, if you're in front of kids, and you need information, we want you to have it. And in the coming year, we're going to focus on trauma-informed classrooms, which is how do we help kids get past the trauma that they've experienced and continue learning? And a good example is a kid I had when I taught first grade at Franklin Elementary. And this young man, whenever he felt bad, he ran. So not necessarily even threatened, but he, if he didn't feel good, he was going to run. And we had to train him that or to teach him that when you when you don't feel good, that's OK for you to get out of that space. But you need to know where to go in school. But you can't run out the door at school. You can't run around the commons area. But you can go to Miss Fennell's room and she'll have a little corner for you and you can come and hang out there until you feel better. And she'll talk to you and then come back to class. This young man lived in a crack house. It was a life skill for him to know when my gut tells me I'm in trouble, I should get out of here. I can't take that away from him, but I had to show him a substitute behavior for school. So we helped him get through his trauma. Another time I had a sixth grade boy come to school one day and he didn't have his homework done. And at that point I was death on homework. I wouldn't be today, but I was then. And I was kind of reading him the riot act about not having his homework done. One of my sixth grade girls says, Miss Fennell, can I see you in the hallway? You're always in trouble when a sixth grade girl says that to you because they're really in charge of the room. And she pulled me in the hall and she goes, didn't you watch the news last night? I said, no. She goes, yeah, his mom was the one on the news who hit several cars. The last one she hit was a cop car. And she got out and spit on the cop and they tased her and put a bag on her head. And I stopped and I walked back in there. I said, thank you for letting me know. And I walked back in the room and I said to him in front of the class, let me apologize for the way I just acted. Can we revisit this now? And let's talk about what part, you know, how can I help you? You know, and it's having, it's, that's being a trauma-informed teacher. That's assuming kids' best intentions and finding out what's getting in the way of them acting on their best intentions.
So you use the expression best intentions, and I want to tie that back with something you said earlier about esteem. Mm-hmm. And all manner of public servants or workers in the public, uh, public industries, public sectors are seeing, I think, a decline in mm-hmm. esteem in many ways. Mm-hmm. Most people listening would be able to and would recognize the question, did you have a favorite teacher? Mm-hmm. Yes, sure. and you can normally name that person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But now it seems as if teachers as a class are demonized in some ways being either incompetent and or you know, reducing the, the, the public purse in inefficient ways. Mm-hmm. So what is happening to the esteem of those people that we entrust our children's education mm-hmm. to and, and, and in, indeed their care? And also at the same time, on the flip side, what is happening to teachers mm-hmm. and their reaction to mm-hmm. this? Well, I think there's two reasons it's happening. Um, one is because we've become such a materialistic society that we judge a person's worth by what they make instead of what they do, which is to me... I'm not sure how we call ourselves a Judeo-Christian country and then turn around and have that type of ethic that is in such juxtaposition to what you would call normal Judeo-Christian ethics. Um, I think that the other reason that um, we are devaluing um, many people who are in public service um, is because we have a tendency, you know, when you when we do... Um, Surveys on what people think of teachers. They always, they love their classroom teacher, they love their school, but the farther it gets away from them, the less they trust. We see the same thing when we look at at political entities, right? You trust the local politician you know the best, and you trust, you know, the one that's farthest away from you the least. I think we have a tendency to, um, well, and in the media, quite honestly, blood sells, right? So we sensationalize what is bad and then what is good, what is going well gets hidden under the carpet because it, it doesn't sell as well, right? Saying what works and how hard you've done something to make it work doesn't hit the papers the same way as a shooting does. I mean, Miller Park, where I taught, is a great example of that. They had to work very long and very hard before the positive news started coming out about Miller Park. But if there's a shooting anywhere near there or something bad that happens, it's all over the place all the time. And so I think that's part of part of the problem. We know one of the problems we have and what's it what it's doing to teachers is it's demoralizing them tremendously. I mean, we know that 50 percent of the people who enter into the education profession will be gone within five years. And and it's because they they got into this job because they love kids and they feel that they're not able to do the work. They're not able to spend the time they want with kids. And it it was really bad during the years of No Child Left Behind when it was just constantly test, test, test. And Nebraska never even got as crazy about that as other places did. You know, you mentioned I work for the U.S. Department of Ed. I spent time traveling the country. And and when people would say, is there any place where they're not testing their kids to death? I would smile and say, well, Nebraska stayed off the crazy train for longer than any of the rest of you. So we didn't go as far down that road. Um, And yet even teachers here felt that we had to do an awful lot of uh, teach and test and teach and test and teach and test. And, you know, some people talk about teaching to the test, which isn't good, but you want to teach enough so that you know that your kids are going to do well on a test. Right. Um, But which actually, though, feeds feeds into your whole piece around you know, could we have kind of the wraparound school that kind of does a lot of different things? The Education Reimagined Project that I work on really talks a lot about how do we personalize education more? How do we make it so that we're meeting the needs of every child? We're using some of this testing and some of these assessments and analysis 
to help us look at the child as an individual and meet their needs as an individual. But that's that's a new concept, quite honestly, um, to be to happen in uh, wide scale systemically. And so that's also stressful for teachers to do that. So. And, you know, decreasing resources, you have teachers who, you know, they're already economically strapped because they're struggling to pay for their own student loans. And then they're in school districts where they're not getting enough resources. And so they're also paying for resources for their own classroom. It's just and then they're dealing with kids who are coming from stress. So they're picking up that stress. So you can begin to see it just gets into this this downward cycle. And we see too many teachers and good teachers. Uh, I I had a number of teachers who said to me, fantastic teachers, award winning teachers. If they bring guns to school and if they tell me that I or my colleague next door can carry a gun, I'm out and I'm done because that's not why I ever got into this profession. And nor do I quite honestly want the teacher next to me who can't remember where they laid their lesson plans to have a gun. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives. My guest today is Maddie Fennell, Executive Director of the Nebraska State Education Association. Would you describe the Nebraska State Education Association, what it is and what it does? The NSEA is a professional organization, a professional home to teachers across the state also retired teachers and student education association members. So we work with kids from high school who are thinking about becoming a teacher. Uh, That's in the work that we do to support Educators Rising. Used to be future teachers associations in our high schools. Now they're called Educators Mm -hmm. Rising. We support those to get people into the career. Then when they're in college, we support them through the Student Education Association of Nebraska, helping them with professional development and um, information and things they need to be successful. Then as they enter into the career, We're supporting them through lots of early career work, and and we also do negotiations. We are a right-to-work state, but we're also a bargaining state. Um, So people don't have to join the NSEA. Joining NSEA is a choice, which we actually kind of like um, because we know that people are here because they want to be here. Uh, And then we also uh, have retired members, uh, thousands of retired members who still want to maintain that contact with the association. And we also help them um, through providing health care and some other services for them. So, you know, we're here to make our mission is a great public school for every child. And that is a mission that every one of our staff and our members take to heart. 
You know, I, I always laugh. I, I became involved in the association when I was at Creighton University as still a student. And I always say, I didn't come into education to be an NSEA member. I came into NSEA to become a better teacher. And so it's something that we really like to, we're trying to reemphasize. Um, I became executive director just a year ago. Jenny Benson became president um, just this past um, August. And she and I are really working to reemphasize that our mission is about kids and everything we do is about kids. And so the legislation that we support should be about making schools better. Um, it is, it's not just about our members because our members aren't going to stay our members if they think we're only there to support them. They want somebody out there who's going to be advocating, not just for them, but for the kids, because they're so busy teaching all day, they don't also have the time to advocate. And so that's our role, which is why we supported something like social LB998 and social workers. It's why we support early childhood, because we know every dollar invested in early childhood come back to a, comes back to us sevenfold. Um, and it's not because it comes back to teachers in their pockets, but it's because it comes back to the community as a whole. And then what is your role with the organization? So I'm the executive director. Um, I'm in charge of the staff. So there are 41 staff people and I'm in charge. We have a, a, a newly defined um, strategic plan and it's my job to make the strategic plan come alive and make sure that that would has, which has been set by the governance in our association and in our association, governance is elected, staff is hired. And so the governance sets the path and the staff is there to make sure that it's carried out. And so my role is to make sure it gets carried out across the board. It's, it's a fun job. It's very different, though. It's, it, um, I am the first person there. Are, we have 50 some affiliates across the country because there's a couple more than just states. And uh, I'm the first person to ever go from the classroom into this position. And I'm the first national board certified teacher. So I really bring a very strong lens of practitioner. Many people who are executive directors across the country are attorneys or they've been on staff for a very long time and then they move into this position. But NSCA was really committed. They wanted somebody in who had a very strong um, child advocate lens and a very strong practitioner lens. And I definitely bring that. Being in a public role like this, are you pilloried? by certain sectors of our community. Oh yeah. oh yeah, there there are those out there who say that, you know, unions are just out to protect bad teachers, that you're only out to get more money for yourselves. Um, anybody who thinks teachers are out to get more money for themselves, they need to look at the profession we came into. <laughs> None of us were into this for the money. Um, and quite honestly, as a teacher of the year, if it wouldn't have been for the union, I wouldn't have been able to maintain being a teacher because we, we do not support bad teachers. We just... Our own kids are in the classrooms. That's not what we're about the business of doing. We are about the business of making sure that everybody has due process. And that's important. Um, when I was teacher of the year, I was kicked out of a building. Right before I was teacher of the year, I was kicked out of a building because of a disagreement I got into with the administration at the time. And two years later, I was named teacher of the year for doing the exact same stuff, but in a different building. Because... Um, strong principles understand and support and embrace teacher advocacy and teacher leadership. Weak principles are terrified of it. And so they will often come after teachers who are showing advocacy and who are showing leadership because it threatens them. I've seen, I've seen principals who have, you know, said, I'm not going to hire back this teacher and I'm going to make that decision based on how she took her kid to the classroom, to the restroom. That's not how you decide if someone's a good teacher or not. But I literally had a principal do that. 
Uh, and so we are there to advocate to make sure that people are getting their due process, that people are observed, that the observations should reflect the practice that they see. And if it's not good enough, then we have to help teachers get better. It's not like there's a huge number of people out here who are, you know, ready and waiting and eager and knocking down the doors to get in our classrooms. We know we have teacher shortages here in Nebraska, which we never used to say. But we have teacher shortages across the state in many different fields, in many different subject areas, in many different grade levels. And so it's we can't just say, oh, that person's struggling a little bit. Get rid of them. Really, it's about, all right, if they're struggling, but they're committed to this work, how can we help them get better? Now, if they don't want to get better, then they need to get gone. Right. Because that's what our kids deserve. Um, I, I once had a conversation with Michelle Ree, who was the she was a superintendent in um Washington, D.C. at the time. And she, she'd been getting a, a rap about getting rid of teachers and stuff. And we just sat down once. We were talking about our contract here in the Omaha Public Schools. And she's like, oh, I would die for that contract. It takes me years to get rid of a teacher. We don't have that. We do have due process. You have to have a, a reason. You have to be able to show, you know, that you tried to help this person. Unless, of course, it's something really egregious or a breach of ethics, which then, of course, they should be gone. Um, you know, you're in a situation where you are with children all day long, you need to be upholding the highest of ethics in that and making sure of their safety at all times, including your own behavior. Um, but unless there's that type of situation, if it's if it's you're struggling in something, then we need to help you get better at that. And we also need to support those teachers who are trying to push the envelope, who are trying to push the system. You know, education has been around in its current dysfunction in some cases for a very long time. I mean, I, I once had a conversation with the Secretary of Education, uh, Arnie Duncan, and it was before I ever even came to the department. He was coming in to speak at, with a, a board that I was chairing at the time. And, you know, we, we said, you know, where do you see the, you know, where is education? Where is the future of education? And he started talking about No Child Left Behind and this and that. And I had to stop him. And I said, I'm sorry, Mr. Secretary, that's not what we're talking about. A, an article had would, just recently been written and it was in Time Magazine, I believe, that said it was kind of a Rip Van Winkle, that if Rip Van Winkle went to sleep and woke up 100 years later, our schools look tremendously like they would have looked like when he fell asleep. We want to know that if, based on the work that that group at the time was doing, if we woke up 50 years from now, how would schools be drastically different based upon the work that we were going to do? And he, he kind of was shocked. He's like, nobody ever asks me that. You know, and that's what we, it takes a lot of energy to re-envision schools in that way. But that's what we really need to be doing. We need to be thinking outside of outside of our current situation. And it's very difficult to do when things are constantly in crisis, when when you're constantly being hit over and over by the next big challenge. It's difficult to put yourself out of that and to just think, well, if we got if we had the opportunity, where would we grow to? Is this part of the Education Reimagine project? Yeah. yeah, it is. So so talk more then about the genesis of that project, how you got involved and and how it's reimagining education. Yeah. So Education Reimagined was a really interesting project. It was started by the Convergent Center on Policy Studies and they are um, a, a group that traditionally works with people who are on opposing sides of any issue. They'd literally worked on Middle East peace <laughs> and they'd worked on um, ed, uh, health issues and they decided to tackle education and they brought people to the table that were at completely opposite ends of the spectrum about what we needed to do with the American education system. And I was brought in because they heard my name from both sides and they thought that was really interesting that the most conservative people they talked to were using my name and the most liberal people they talked to were using my name. So I was brought in as kind of the one of the first teachers that was involved. And we spent 18 months just 
getting outside of today to think bigger. And it was really hard. I mean, there were times where I was yelling at our facilitators, can we just get to this? And they're like, no, because you're not there yet. You're still thinking in today. We're trying to get you to think that if, you know, we had to abandon the planet and all get on a ship and go somewhere else, how would we start the system new? And it's so hard to think about that. And I'll never forget one activity we did. We thought we'd kind of really imagined a great individualized system for every kid that utilized technology. And so we, we acted out what it would be like for that kid to go through the day. And at the end of the day we realized this kid has had no contact with another human being that's not good either that's not what we were trying to do we're not trying to put kids in social isolation so we went back and we had to rethink again yet again yet again what we were doing and we really came up with these with with an understanding of the individualization that had to take place around education but individualization yet embedded in a social network and a social frame that you know education had to be personalized that it had to, that we had to look at things systemically, then that to do this and to shift the system in this way, we were also going to have to shift the people that were working within the system. It's easy to shift the kids. It's harder to shift the adults. So one of the most interesting things about Education Reimagined is that at the same time we're working with adults and we're trying to do some training with adults and we're trying to build some systems with adults. They're also building out here what they call Spark House and they bring kids in who are already all about this. They're like, yep, love it. I'm on board. How do I do this? And using kids as activists back in their communities for them to promote the kind of education that they want to see and what what they find interesting and exciting. And of course, not shocking, it's education that's more relevant and contextualized than what we offer today. You know, it's like the Iowa Big School, which um, fascinating place. Kids get to come and spend half a day working on big picture projects like like, you know, working on arts and recreation for a, a major city arts project or helping with an irrigation system or helping build a new playground so that they're using their math skills and their social studies skills and their writing and reading. And they're putting it into a real life application instead of just something from a textbook. And that's what makes things real for kids. It's that real life application that's contextualized, that's relevant, that really gives them the skills they need to be successful. And, you know, no kid ever said to me, Miss Fennell, I really remember that worksheet you gave me. No, what they say is I remember when you took us to to the Jocelyn and we looked at those Chaluli thingies, balloony thingies. And then you went back to class and you got rid of every single desk and we all made our own balloony thingies hanging from the ceiling. You know, those are the types of things that kids remember. My kids read in the paper about a, a homeless man who's living in a dog, a dog kennel. And they were so appalled at that. I said, well, what are you going to do about it? It's great to be appalled, but what are you going to do about it? And these were kids who every one of them was on free and reduced price lunch. And they said, well, we think we can sell suckers. I said, all right. And I can't tell you the number of thousands of suckers that they sold because you can buy a sucker for a quarter. And they ended up collecting like $700 for the homeless. And they gave it to the Visiting Nurses Association to be able to take care of the health needs of the homeless. And they were so proud of themselves. For good. Then they went to the, to the event and they handed in their check and they felt so empowered for doing that. That's what brings about real education. Or like the young woman who I had stitches in my head and and she's looking over me one day and she's like, they forgot a stitch. And I said, okay, you can take it out. However, when you become Dr. Spencer, I get all the credit. Well, she's Dr. Spencer as of about two weeks ago. So, you know, that's that's what we're talking about. Real life experiences that make a difference in the life of the child. Is this... Education Reimagined 
as part of that project slowly unfolding into the education system? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it takes time. You know, when you're, when you push against the system, the system pushes back. <laughs> you know, the system doesn't like to change. Change is threatening to systems. And so they're going first to places, you know, where the field is, is, um, is fertile, right? With superintendents who want to do this work, who understand this work, with deans of education who understand, oh, this is the kind of teacher you want me to produce. Um, with school boards that say, wow, we really want to be outside the envelope for our kids. We get how this is, you know, really going to make a difference for kids, not, you know, taking away recess. That's not what's going to make a difference for kids, right? It's actually studies have found putting in more recess for younger kids is what actually helps them learn. So it's finding places where the ground is ready for this work and then planting the seed in those places. And they found some really good places, you know, places in in California and down in San Antonio. And there's pockets all over the place that they're finding for this work. And in Nebraska? Not yet. We keep hoping, but we're not quite there yet. You know, the good, okay, here's the good and the bad in Nebraska. So the good is the crazy goes on outside around us and we kind of stay the course we're on. So we don't get thrown off by the crazy, like no child left behind. We did not get thrown off by that as much as other people did. We did not go forward with putting in the common core standards, which I actually didn't have a problem with common core. To me, it kind of made sense. The problem was the way it was rolled out because first they rolled out the common core. Then they did teacher evaluations, tying it to student tests before they were ever even allowed teachers to learn what the standards were and how to teach to them. And they tied high level consequences to it first, which made the whole system fall down like a house of cards. We didn't do that here in Nebraska. The negative side of it is it takes a while for Nebraska to get on to a new trend, right? And so it's definitely got a yin and a yang, a pro and a con kind of connotation to it. And we really don't have any place in Nebraska yet who's doing the the real individualized learning. We've got a couple places that are, that are, um, experimenting a little bit, you know, like the virtual school, it's a bit of an experimentation because they still require, you know, a bit of a socialization with that. You still come together. So it's the beginning, but as far as wholesale systemic, systemic reform, not yet.
Tell me, Maddie, about your own childhood. Well, this is kind of funny because here I'm heading an organization all for public schools and I went my entire life to Catholic school. <laughs> I was a Catholic school girl from I went to I went to um, Windsor for kindergarten and after that Catholic school my entire life right through Creighton University. Um, but my younger brother and sister didn't. My younger brother and sister both were special education students and uh, public schools were a godsend to them. And so um, I feel like my family's kind of straddled both worlds um, and Quite honestly, in the state of Nebraska, I, I talk to more parents and I see more parents that choose Catholic schools or private schools as really more of a religious choice for them than a choice because the public schools are bad. Um, they really, public schools in Nebraska have very, um, they're, they're well regarded by the public, especially in comparison to other places, uh, which is great. Um, but still, we acknowledge the fact that families have the right to put their kid in another school if they want to. We just don't believe that the state should pay for that because we're already struggling to pay for the public school system. So so as a Catholic school kid, um, went to Creighton and came out and taught in the north side. And what else was life like for you just as a child? Well, it was interesting because I, I was in Omaha through fifth grade and then I went to junior high and high school in North Platte. That was a major culture shock for me to um, go from the big city to a small town. Um that was hard, but I learned to love it. I learned to love the small town feel. I learned to love having prom at a barn, um, but that the, the post-prom party at least. But the other interesting thing in my family is both my folks were alcoholics and they didn't sober up until I was in high school. So even within, when I talk to kids about, when I talk to students and others about different cultures, I talk about how you can have a different culture within your own family because my older brother and I grew up in a culture with drinking parents. My younger brother and sister grew up in a culture, grew up in a culture with sober parents and AA parents on top of that. They weren't just sober. They were like, my dad, we laugh. He still goes, he's been sober 30 some years and he goes to AA every day except Tuesday because that's when NCIS is on. So, but that, you know, they grew up, grew up in a completely different culture. Um, I, I was one of those kids that was stressed out. I was one of those kids that needed school as a safety valve. Um, I needed my teachers to be keeping an eye on me because things were not good at home. And my teachers did. And they they would um, make sure that my individual need was being met. So if they knew I was up too late, they, you know, they made accommodations for that at school. When I had to move out in high school until my parents sobered up, the school knew I'd done that. And they're like, okay, well, we'll just work with you around that. And they didn't lower the expectations any more than we should lower the expectations for anybody else. But they, they made sure that I could meet what was needed without overstressing the rest of my life. So... So I, I grew up with teachers who really made a tremendous difference in my life. So when you talk about who was your favorite teacher, you know, I can think about Sister Margaret Ann in first grade and Mrs. Ostermeyer in junior high. And, um, you know, even Father Scanlon, who recently um, uh, passed away. You know, there's there was a lot of people who made a difference in my life. It seems that the experience of teachers in your own life and also being a teacher for others is clearly a very evocative and emotional experience for you. So why then the transition from teaching into more strategic, uh, I don't, not even administrative, mm -hmm. but more strategic mm -hmm. roles? Yeah, well, I've said a number of times, system, system, system. And um, I took on this position because the system has to change. And I wanted to, it was becoming harder and harder for me to be the kind of teacher that I knew my kids needed me to be within the system as it existed. So uh, because I'd had a number of opportunities to uh, look at things from a systems point of view, um, I felt 
Actually, my husband and I had this argument because I really wanted to go back to the classroom and he really argued, no, you really have to use what you've learned and change the system. And and I, I had to come around to his agreeing with him that he was right um, with the caveat that we both agreed that once the system was the way it should be, I got to go back to teaching. <laughs> um, I don't know if I'll be ready for that, um, but it's an exciting thought to me. I want to always have that door open, um, but it's because the system itself has to change and we need people who can be spending their time advocating and advocating from a position of knowledge. You know, there's a lot of people who think they know what's wrong in education, but they haven't stepped in a classroom since they were the student. And I don't presume to know what my doctor should know about me just because I'm the patient doesn't mean I know everything about my own health. And yet we have people who think they know everything about education just because they they sat in a classroom as the student. And that's part of the problem that we have. And we don't hold teachers in high enough regard. I always say the problem in education is usually everybody around the table making a decision on education is not the teacher. And if you're not at the table, then you're on the menu. And so often people who are making these decisions, there's some finger pointing going around and they're going to point right at the teachers is the problem because the teachers aren't at the table um, to have their own voice in this. Also, teachers are considered the foot soldiers. And so you'll roll something out without understanding the impact of the decision you're going to make. Again, I hate to harken back to NCLB too much, but in No Child Left Behind, we had this whole thing about highly effective teachers. Everybody wants a highly effective teacher. We all want that for our kids. But the the definition of that was so limited. I had a friend who was named Tennessee Teacher of the Year for the incredibly innovative program that she did. Two weeks after she was named Teacher of the Year, a letter went out to every parent saying she was not highly effective because her program was too new and didn't fit inside the box because it, 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 it was an amalgamation of a bunch of different programs that was tremendous and having life-changing impact, but it didn't fit inside the box. Now, no person who passed that policy wanted that to happen. No policymaker that I ever met when I was at the department passed a policy thinking, I really want to make schools bad for kids. They thought they were doing what was in the best interest, but because the practitioner wasn't at the table, they didn't see what was going to happen. I mean, we always talk about a learning gap, you know, an achievement gap among kids. I talk about an implementation gap among the adults, and that's the gap that happens between policy and practice. After you pass a rule before the rubber hits the road and it, you know, you see it in the classroom, we have an implementation gap if we don't have the practitioner at the table. So I try to uh, bring my role as a practitioner, but bring other practitioners in also because, you know, I've been out of the classroom now about three years, and the, the longer you get out, the less eyeball you really have on that. And so I try to bring other teachers to the table with me. So as we, as we draw to a close, then let me. That's fast. <laughs> <laughs> so as we speed through one, one final thought from you, and I want to give you this magic wand that I have right in my hand right now, and you're going to wave it. Looks just like Hermione's. <laughs> it, it's exactly like that. Uh, but the wand selects the wizard, of course, and it has selected you. And it selected you to say, wave me and make a change mm. to education. And what would that change be? Wow, that's a really good question. It's funny because when I came on staff, I gave everybody a wand and told them they could change our organization. Now I realize that was a really hard question. Um I think that if I could change, if I could change the system, I would make it into a truly child-centered system where every adult in the system was focused on doing what was truly in the best needs of the children, not in the best needs of the adult or not in order to make political gain or whatever. If we really stayed student-child-centered 
and we're making our decisions around what was best for them, I think that our, it would turn the system you know, on its ear. To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. Live's radio show is supported by Humanities Nebraska, inspiring and enriching personal and public life by delivering opportunities to engage thoughtfully with history and culture. Learn more at humanitiesnebraska.org. conversation with Maddie Fennell. Maddie, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. This was fun. That's the end of this week's show. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.